Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, welcome back. Um, at this time, we just, it's our position to go around the room and introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Grisha. I'm George. Dennis. I'm Jared. I'm Stephen. Jason. Someone Gary, Brian, my name is Mark, Peter, Jay, Jim, oh, my name is Harley, my name is Cass, Mark, my name is Michael, I'm Coyote, Craig, Christian, my name Brian. is Douglas, my name is Ray, I'm Larry, I'm Don, Mike, I'm Clint. My name is Jerry. Uh, Roger. Okay, welcome everyone. And um, today's teacher is David Lewis. So we'll for our newcomers who don't know David. David Lewis has been following the Dharma path for 45 years and has a degree in comparative religious studies. He teaches insight meditation and enjoys sharing the Dharma at several sanghas around the Bay Area. He is a proud longtime member of Gay Buddhist Fellowship. And his scheduled talk was to be on the Foundations of Mindfulness Part 2. However, <laughs> I changed it. <laughs> I hope nobody leaves. <laughs> um, I can always come back to Satipatthana. That's really a year long explanation. Exploration that Satipatthana Sutta is the, the Buddhist teaching about uh, foundations of mindfulness, basically how to meditate. But um, I noticed I was here a couple of weeks ago when uh, Reverend Shutt spoke uh, from the Zen tradition, and even though it wasn't really the focus of her talk, the questions and answers and the discussion was all about how does Buddhism help us deal with difficult times. And I speak at a couple of different sagas um, besides GBF, and this topic is, just keeps coming up, understandably. So it just seems very, there seems to be a need to talk about you know, dealing with difficult times, um, maybe more so than usual. On the other hand, um, that's basically the topic of, of um, all the Buddha's teachings. There's nothing new. There's not a special Buddhist teaching about how do I deal with difficult times. The Buddha said, I teach the noble truth of suffering and alleviation from suffering. That's it. But we talk about this, this practice that the Buddha taught. He didn't found a religion, but he did offer a practice. This practice that the Buddha offered um, was about dealing with difficult times whether it's difficulties in our own personal lives, of illness or relationships or old age, death and uh, loss, or whether it's difficulty in society, um, the wreck of the world, um, war, refugees, uh, injustice. It's all suffering. And suffering isn't just the big events of our lives and the big events of the world. Suffering isn't feeling terrible and having a terrible life. Um, sometimes it is. But if you were, during the sit this morning, during the meditation this morning, if you had an itch that um, you might have refrained from scratching, that was suffering. That's a little bit of dukkha. And if you're a practitioner and if you've ever been on a meditation retreat where somebody suggested if you have an itch try not scratching it and see what happens and what usually happens is the mind runs away with it this is driving me nuts when's it going to stop when do I get to scratch it 
that's um, what we add to that suffering. Itch is nothing. A resistance to it is the second noble truth. That's the cause of suffering. That's the added baggage that we add to that itch. And then maybe in your meditation, particularly if you're if you have your own meditation practice, you might have noticed that. You know, I'm really struggling with this with this itch. You just can't let it go. And you notice that you know, that's going on in your mind, and you do let it go. Let go of your attachment to it, your resistance. That's the third noble truth. That's freedom from suffering. As simple as that. All about an itch. That itch might be a thought and not a physical sensation. But you may have experienced the totality of the truth of Buddha Dharma without realizing it in your meditation this morning. And if you did, that's a much more valuable lesson to be learned this morning at GBF than anything I say. Peace. It does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. It means to be in the midst of all those things and still be calm in your heart. I don't know how I, I don't know who said that. I don't think it's a Buddha quote. But it defines equanimity. So that's what I'd like to talk about this morning a little bit. There are different responses in Buddhist practice to difficulty. And uh, the ones I like to kind of fo- come back to and focus on are the Brahma Viharas, the divine states that the Buddha said we should cultivate. Metta, goodwill or loving kindness is one of them. And compassion is another one, both compassion for others and compassion for ourselves. And equanimity is the fourth Brahma Vihara. The great contemporary Burmese meditation teacher, Uteshaniya, says, as a meditator, no experience in the world needs to disturb you. Don't think about this in terms of current events or your own life. No experience in the world needs to disturb you. Instead, because every experience, whether pleasant or unpleasant, is something we can continuously be aware of. We can, therefore, use it to develop more confidence, energy, mindfulness, stability of mind, and wisdom. So who doesn't want that? That's how we can relate to the events of the world. We can use them as our teachers to develop more confidence, energy, mindfulness, stability of mind, and wisdom. According to Uteshaniya, it's one of my favorite teachers, um, he says that um, the practice of meditation is not about finding calmness or tranquility. The practice of meditation is about knowing. It's about knowing, it's about awareness. Tranquility is an occasional side effect of recognize our habitual mental patterns and, and knowing them. Um, because then we can let go. And in letting go, there's some tranquility. But from his teachings, his point of view, um, what's important is that we know first. That awareness is what really matters. Tranquility is just a side effect. So right effort, which is... Um, one step on the Eightfold Path, Noble Eightfold Path, right effort is about knowing what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. And if we know what, in our mental patterns, what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering, then we can cultivate the former and we can let go of the latter. I had a um, health scare about a month ago. It turned out to be nothing, so don't worry about me. Um, 
but it was kind of scary because they, they had a um, CAT scan done and they thought they found cancer like in two different places, something that looked an anomaly on the scan. So I ended up having like two more CAT scans and an MRI and I got poked and prodded and it took them about a month to figure out that there was easy explanations for what was going on. But during that course of the month, I didn't know. All I knew is that my doctors thought that I might have cancer. And it was a really interesting experience uh, to go through because um, one of the things that I noticed and that kind of surprised me is that um, unexpectedly, uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, panic about it. And I did. The other way of putting that is I had quite a bit of equanimity about it. And every time I saw my mind kind of going towards, gee, do I have cancer? I could saw that happen, and I thought, well, I don't know. And thinking about it, it's not going to help me out. Or my mind would start another time. My mind would go, well, if I did have cancer, would I treat it, or maybe should I just, maybe this is just it? And I think, I, I don't have to go there either. This is not. That's not productive. It's not skillful. It's not going to support me. So I just kind of didn't worry about it. Still showed up for my appointments, I still did everything the doctors told me to do, but um, it didn't shake me too much. And I realized um, during the course of that that that's fruits of practice, that's the fruits of my mindfulness practice. Um, and I'm so deeply grateful for my practice, having gone through that experience. It's often, some of you might have noticed, it's hard to see the fruits of our mindfulness practice. They just don't show up in a really obvious way. Sometimes you just notice, oh, it's pleasant to meditate, it's nice to be quiet, but how is this changing my life? Oh, I don't see anything. Until something like that happens, until you get a diagnosis, or you lose a loved one, or something really earth-shaking happens in your life, and you have a different response than you might have had ten years ago. And then you notice, oh, that's not the way I would have responded ten years ago. That's the fruits of practice. So that's why it's said um, by many meditation teachers where students ask them, well, how do I know where I am in my practice? How do I measure it? They say, don't worry about it. You should you know, maybe take a look at your practice every ten years. Look back. But not any more than that. Every 10 years, think, you know, what's, how am I different than I was 10 years ago? Then you might have a little bit of perspective. So that was my experience with, with this health scare. I thought, wow, I'm different than I was 10 years ago. Have more equanimity. It's not something that I consciously practiced. I didn't tell myself, okay, I'm going to be equanimous about this. It was just there. Fruits of practice. When I reported that experience to um, a friend of mine who's a meditation teacher, a Dharma teacher. Uh, and this friend had also done quite a bit of um, service in a, a hospice, the Zen hospice project as a volunteer. His response was, so I'm talking about the body, his response was, the body's not a problem. Old age, illness, and death are not a problem. Their nature. That's what happens. As another teacher of mine likes to say, the leading cause of death is birth. <laughs> it's going to happen to all of us. Illness happens. Cancer happens. It's nature. It doesn't mean we don't do anything about it. It doesn't mean we don't address it. But this idea that this isn't supposed to be happening is a delusion. It's not true. This is what happens. It's not a helpful response. Most of our suffering, the Buddha taught, most of our suffering doesn't come from the events of, in our lives, like a health diagnosis. Most of our suffering comes from our response to those events, how we respond. So the important practice in, in Dharma practice is noticing our response, not getting hung up on the 
the events of noticing our response and maybe cultivating a different response or maybe letting go of an unhealthy response. So my friends comment um, that there's nothing wrong with the body uh, really opened up my eyes to something and I thought what if, what could, could you say there's nothing wrong with the world? The world's just doing its thing. The world's doing its injustice. The world's doing its war. The world's doing its, its terrorism, its fascism. Along with kindness, and support, and community, and good works, the world's doing its thing. There's nothing wrong with the world. This is the way it is. What if we viewed the wreckage of the world our politics, our environment, our divided communities. What if we viewed these things as the Buddha did? As simply being the result of causes and conditions. Simply the result of causes and conditions. So then our response, instead of being, this shouldn't be happening, this isn't normal, our response might be, this is how it is. It's like this. And if we don't like the way it is, then we can go about creating the causes and conditions to create something different. It's also a good description of karma. The way the world is, or the way our personal lives are now, is a result of a long history of a lot of different factors that create our past karma. Future karma depends on what we do right now, the causes and conditions that we cultivate in the present moment. So letting go of this assumption that I tend to, I carry myself much of the time when I'm not being very mindful and in many of my discussions with many of my friends, especially around politics, that this shouldn't be happening, I just don't find it to be particularly helpful. It certainly doesn't um, make me a better activist. It makes me wring my hands and grind my teeth. Believing that we're living in a slow-motion train wreck is pretty stressful. <laughs> right? That's what I'm seeing in so many of the songs where I talk is we're all pretty stressed out. And I recognize that in my own life. And I realized when I was reflecting on it, on it the other day, when I was just feeling overwhelmed, well, last week was a bad week for us. <laughs> and in the middle of it, when I was finding I couldn't tear myself away from the screens, from what was happening every morning, I thought, you know, this, this feels really bad. I mean, internally, it feels really bad. And what it reminded me of, of is 9 11. Mm-hmm. 9 11. Oh. The Twin Towers coming down. How many times did we watch that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not turn away from it. That's what it feels like to me. So that's stressful. And stress is one of the definitions of dukkha. The, the first noble truth of dukkha is stress. It's our resistance to what's happening in the world. Our, our reaction of this shouldn't be happening. So we need to cultivate some equanimity. The Buddha taught that we should need to cultivate goodwill, compassion, and equanimity if we're to avoid spiraling into despondency in life. Otherwise we will. And many of us, many days, that's what it feels like, spiraling into despondency. And the tool for cultivating equanimity is meditation. You can't say, I'm going to be equanimous today, or I'm going to meet whatever happens with equanimity. You have to practice meditation, training the mind, training the heart, to not get attached to the way things we think, the way we think things ought to be. There's a, a famous story in you know, the Buddhist tradition about King Ashoka, King Ashoka was a real king in India, 
Um, he was a very great king. He was a unifier of, um, of India, one of the earliest unifiers of India. Um, and the way he unified all these warring states was by being the biggest warrior and the meanest guy um, on the continent. And he um, first killed most of his family in order to become king and kind of wiped out anybody that might be a threat to his, his monarchy. Um, and then he proceeded to declare war on any, any kingdom that um, didn't uh, allow him to take over. He killed a great many people. He's also famous for um, having converted to Buddhism and creating one of the, one of the most peaceful empires that um, the world has ever known. And the story about how that happened is a legend. I've since learned, when I was actually researching this talk, looking into his story, I realized there's different versions of the story. But, uh, people in India are, are pretty aware of this story. It's cool, school kids know. But the story I first heard in a retreat someplace is that um, after one of his greatest battles, and he, he conquered the biggest kingdom that he'd ever come up against and basically um, created his empire. But that very day, the day at the end of the battle, he was sitting on a hill overlooking the carnage, the wreckage, dead bodies, horses, blood. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies. And he's sitting on a hill overlooking the carnage. And he saw this monk walking through the, the battlefield, um, utterly serene and unmoved by it, walking right through the battlefield. And um, it just it baffled him. It was so discordant with the scene that he wanted to know what's that about? What is that guy? Why is he wearing that robe? And, and, and why isn't he shaking his fist at me? And the story, the way I heard it, is that was his conversion to Buddhism. So I researched it a little bit. And, and the reason I researched it is because I've had this fantasy ever since I heard that story that if I was a good writer, um, the story I would write is the story of that monk, which we don't know. I didn't think we knew anything about. But then I researched it a little bit and I realized well, that monk really does have a backstory. And in another part of the legend, or another telling of the legend, what um, I read was that um, the monk had a name, his name was Negroda. And he was actually King Ashoka's nephew, one of the few surviving members of the family. <laughs> He'd been such a small kid when he was exiled, along with his mother, that the, the king didn't view him as a threat, and he became a Buddhist monk. And so the king called uh, Negroda to him, the monk, found out that he was his nephew whose father he had killed. His nephew just saw this great destruction that his uncle had just done. And the nephew wasn't holding anything against him. He wasn't judging him. He wasn't shaking his fist. And the king asked him how he could have such equanimity. How could he have, how could he have such a peaceful mind, given the wrongs that were done to him and his family? And the nephew taught him the, the Buddhist path. King Ashoka became a Buddhist as a result of this encounter um, and basically converted the uh, Indian Peninsula for several centuries. So simply being peaceful, a simple act of being peaceful and calm can have a profound influence on the world. That story is an example of it. I think that's kind of the point of the story. When we offer the merit of our practice at the end of Sangha, we offer the merit of our practice, that's what we're acknowledging, is we don't know who's being influenced by our peacefulness, by our practice, by our kindness. Another example from recent news is the Thai soccer team. They got stuck in the cave in Thailand. Warthogs? Was that it? What was their name? Does anybody remember? Wild boars. Boars. Wild boars. Wild boars, thank you. Wild boars. 
So here's a bunch of really little kids that are stuck in a totally dark cave with waters rising for 10 days with little or no food. Imagine how terrifying that is for us, let alone for a child. But it happened that their coach, their assistant coach, who was with them, was, had been a Buddhist monk. And he taught them meditation. Because what else are you going to do with your time? <laughs> he taught them meditation. And by some accounts, that may very well have saved their lives. Kept them calm, kept them from panicking. And also practicing meditation allows your, your body to be still and your metabolism to slow down. Which is probably useful when you're not eating for 10 days. So sometimes meditation saves lives. One more story. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh tells a story of it's not using equanimity to deal with difficult times. Still on my theme. Thich Nhat Hanh tells the story about the evacuation of Saigon, of South Vietnam, at the end of the war. And he heard stories that um, what happened, we actually have this on film, but what happened is, is people would swim out to whatever boat was, was leading the coast. The boats were fishing boats, canoes, whatever it was that were heading out to the American ships that were anchored off the coast. And every single one of these boats was overloaded because everybody was trying to get out of the country. It was a panic. It was a mass exodus. And a lot of those boats capsized and a lot of people died. But Thich Nhat Hanh heard a story that if there were boats where there were meditators, not necessarily monks, but people that were calm, that, were med that, that meditated. Hmm. And um, it was pointed out to it that if there was one person meditating in an overcrowded boat, chances are that boat did not overturn. That one person had that much effect on, on the rest of their passengers. They survived. So that's another inspirational story to me. And, and one of the ways that uh, I think about it it's whenever I write Muni or Bart nowadays. <laughs> I'm drawn to anybody that's not on their phone. I'm drawn to anybody on Muni or Bart that is just sitting there peacefully, maybe with their eyes closed, maybe with their eyes open, but they're just not doing anything, but just sitting quietly. Those are the people that I notice. And it does something for me. It's, it's, it's a pleasant experience. So, of course, I decide I have to be one of those people. So I don't look at my phone when, I, when I'm on Muni or Bart. I just sit there quietly because in the first place, it does me good. I benefit from sitting quietly instead of um, distracting myself, instead of multitasking. I benefit. But also it might just benefit anybody that happens to notice that I'm sitting there quietly, not looking at my phone, and maybe they'll get the message that hmm. they don't have to have a distraction. It's not necessary to distract ourselves. Sometimes just sitting quietly is enough. So it seems to me that the place to start in making peace in the world is by making peace in our own minds start with ourselves. Peace is available any moment. It's a little mantra of mine that I find very helpful, especially when I'm kind of freaking out about something. Peace is available any moment. It all depends on how we're responding to that moment. No matter what's going on in our life, no matter what's going on in the world, peace is available. If we're having a hard day at work, or if we're having an argument with a partner or somebody in our family, or if we're worried about our health, we can stop, take a breath, close our eyes, and reboot. We don't have to run away with a, 
discursive thinking. The what if or why me questions. You don't have to go there. Peace is available at any moment. Sometimes only for a moment. Or sometimes it lasts for a while. We just keep coming back to that. It's the practice. Meditation isn't just about coming to Sangha or it's not just about sitting on a cushion for a half an hour a day at home. It's about knowing, knowing what's going on in your mind and making choices. The Buddha said, develop a mind that is like a vast space where experiences, both pleasant and unpleasant, can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is like the vast sky. That's very similar to that Utejaniya quote. Both those quotes said, don't let pleasant or unpleasant experiences shake you. And when the Buddha talked about not having preferences, that's what he's talking about. We will experience pleasant in our meditation and in life. We'll experience unpleasant. But we don't have to get attached to either one. It doesn't mean that unpleasant is going to go away or pleasant will become permanent. But not being attached, not trying to create more pleasant or eliminate unpleasant in our lives, allows equanimity to arise. That doesn't mean that we should become complacent. It's one of the common arguments that uh, non-Buddhists or non-practitioners make at this point in a talk like this. It's, well, that's complacency. It's just saying this is the way things are. There's nothing I can do about it. I tend to find that Buddhists are pretty good activists. We don't have to be complacent. People who are very good at what they do, especially experts, say elite athletes or musicians, or even nowadays hedge fund managers, (laughs) find that mindfulness and concentration allow them to do what they do better. Mindfulness is being taught as a tool to Make you better at whatever it is you do. Think of the samurai. Bloodthirsty meditators. So if you want to be a skillful activist in this world, if you want to do something, go out and do, and the Americans, we're, we're doers, we like to do. If you want to be a skillful activist, I say cultivate your mind first. In troubled times, we all need need to be able to take refuge in equanimity and peace of mind, not to mention goodwill, compassion, and joy, particularly in equanimity. We need to be able to calm our minds. Um, Just when I was reviewing this talk before I came over this morning, I went over that line. In troubled times, we can have peace of mind, not to mention goodwill, compassion, and joy. Um, up popped a, a thought of Anne Frank. And most of us as kids, if not more recently, have heard and read the Anne Frank story. But she, here she is living in utter terror in a terrible society, living in fear and hiding every day. And if you read what she wrote, it's peace of mind. She shows peace of mind, goodwill, compassion, and joy. That's the amazing thing about her story. If we don't cultivate peace of mind or inner peace, we burn out. That's the lesson I learned protesting the Vietnam War. And later on in ACT UP, I saw a lot of activists burn out. I got arrested at Nixon's second inauguration. That tells you how old I am. But I've seen, I've been through a lot of different uh, social justice movements. And I've seen a lot of people burn out because they held extremely strong opinions 
but didn't know how to take care of themselves. So we have to learn peace. And those of us that are drawn to uh, Buddha Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, uh, that's done through the practice of meditation. Not about thinking about things, not about learning great wisdom. It's learned by simply being with what it is, whatever's going on, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Simply being with what is going on. Then, if you're a warrior, gird your loins and go forth into battle. But we're not all warriors. And change, resistance, takes many different types. Monks and politicians, <coughs> poets and planners, teachers, healers, warriors and peacemakers. There's a role for you someplace. Maybe it's not to be a street activist. Maybe it's something else. So finding peace of mind in the Buddha's way involves some letting go. That's the third noble truth, the truth of letting go, the truth of freedom from suffering. Letting go maybe of our cultural conditioning, letting go of our views and opinions, our idea of the way things should be, our preferences. All of those things contribute to a big ego to self-righteousness. Has anybody noticed some self-righteous indignation lately? <laughs> How's that feel? It's not very nice. I don't like reading the paper anymore. I do. I get self-righteous every morning. I do. But because of my practice, I notice it at some point. Maybe I notice it when I realize I'm grinding my teeth, but I notice it, and then I can let go. It'll be back again. So being fully present in the moment means not being attached to our preferences. If we're all caught up in our preferences, we can't be present. Whatever's going on in our experience, whether pleasant or unpleasant, is like this. It's just like this. And then the worldly winds, what the Buddha called the worldly winds of praise and blame, success and failure, pain and pleasure, gain and loss, will no longer rattle us. One of the most important things that we can learn from our practice as a direct experience is to notice, to know, know the difference between what's happening in our experience and how we're responding to it, what our reaction to it is. The first may, be, may not be fixable, what's happening in our experience. We might not be able to fix it or change it. But the second, we can have an influence on how we're responding. This is the Buddha's famous teaching, famous metaphor of the two arrows. Buddha said, everything that happens to you in life, absolutely everything, physical, mental, or otherwise, everything that happens to you in life is like being hit by two different arrows. The first arrow is whatever it is that happens, a cancer threat. The second arrow is how you respond to it. The Buddha said that almost universally, most of our suffering comes from the second arrow, not the first arrow. Most of our suffering in life comes from our responses to things. So this is a tremendously useful lesson to notice in mindfulness practice is the difference between what happens and how we react. I've gotten so I can kind of notice um, the difference between um, how practitioners, meditation practitioners, respond to the question, how are you doing or what's going on? They often have a noticeably different response than somebody that doesn't practice. Somebody different that doesn't practice, and oftentimes me when I'm not being mindful, somebody asks me what's going on, I'll tell them what's, what the events of my life are, the, the story of my day, you know, what's happening today that's good or not good. But when I'm more mindful, I'll respond, I'll respond by how I'm responding to that. 
what's happening inside. It might be that the terrible thing that's happened today is, uh, is not rattling me. So likewise, we should not confuse the problems of the world with our reactions to them. Because peace of mind does not depend on outside circumstances. Our peace of mind is not reliant on outside circumstances. It's all about your response. So if we can deflate our judgmental, controlling self just a little bit, we'll be able to see things more as they are, with nothing, nothing left out. The other thing that came to me this morning, was, I was sitting here and I went over that line, we can deflate our judgmental, controlling self. What's it look like to deflate the self? I thought of that Trump balloon in London. <laughs> Trump baby. The angry baby that's full of hot air. That's me sometimes. Sometimes I'm that angry baby. That's a big inflated ego. We can deflate that. Deflate that baby, angry baby. And see things just as they are. Without this giant angry indignant ego getting in our way. A lovely side effect of this practice is simply paying attention to our direct experience without trying to judge it or control it. A lovely side effect is equanimity, balance, harmony, however you want to put it. Harmony in your own mind, harmony in the world. They're related. And if equanimity doesn't come to you easily, if you're just really rattled, try compassion. Another one of the Brahma Viharas. Suffering feels like this. Just feels like this. Have a little compassion. You don't have to get rid of it. You just feel it. So I'd like to end with a short poem by Wendell Berry, how he feels. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair grows in me and I wake in the middle of the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests its beauty on the water and the great heron feeds I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought or grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. And for a time, I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. So thank you for your kind attention, and um, as always, uh, I'm most interested in what you think, feedback or questions, or what helps you. What, what tools do you find to be useful in keeping peace of mind in difficult times? Thank you for um, talking about uh, the self-righteous response. Uh, a speaker here some years ago um, spoke about how she had been wronged by a man and she could not let it go. Um, and it took her a long time until she realized that if she indulged in what she called the perfume of self-righteousness, <laughs> she was a goner. She'd go into, go into the spiral addiction. Right. Um, and sometimes when I graze the news in the morning, I'm looking for that buzz, you know. Um, filthy air that makes me feel good temporarily. <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting to notice how you, how you feel, right? Because it does at least the first way for me, the first wave of of anger is self righteousness. It's kind of whoa. It is kind of a buzz. Yeah. As you describe. 
But then I almost always notice that I, as I spiral into you know, feeding that, uh-huh. that is pretty unpleasant. <laughs> it's exhausting, actually. But I don't know. I'm not speaking for you. No, that's exactly my story. Yeah, yeah I exhaust myself every morning. So that, that's actually the, that's a great mindfulness practice that we can all practice. Just go ahead and read the paper or watch the news or wherever you get it. But notice how you feel. Please. All right. There are difficult people in my life, uh, and uh, and otherwise acknowledge that difficult besides me, you know, what hard to be with. Yeah. Uh, and my uh, uh, Mickey Austin, you know, the, the Buddhist teacher, the Zen Center, uh, once listened to me and said, "Do you have any idea how hard it is for her?" To be her, <laughs> uh, and that has stayed with me. I think it's at the core. A lot of the times when I start sure. feeling, you know, yeah. yes, how hard. And when I look at her, she just beats herself up all the time. Yeah. She just yeah. can't take it easy. Yeah. And she happens to be a world famous physician. Mm-hmm. And yet, inside, she can't be peaceful at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, look at almost any politician. They're, they're famous too, and you see that. But that's a compassionate response. Your response is a, a response that you, you see their suffering. Mm-hmm. There's, a, oh, there's a wonderful uh, Henry David Longfellow quote that mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't quote from memory, but basically it says, if we could see into the hearts and minds of our worst enemies, we would find something to, we would find forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Because it's not a pretty picture. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's the compassion response. And compassion is really helpful. It's another way that you can, another technique for reading the paper is to have the compassion responses. People are hurting. Read about the families being separated and arrested Mm -hmm. at the border. You can meet that with compassion or judgment. But it feels better to meet it with compassion. And it doesn't make us any less of an activist to to meet that with compassion. Well, it's easy for me to feel compassion for those people who are separating their children or other suffering. This is an obvious thing to say, but the difficult is, I feel, is to feel compassion for the people who are inflicting that suffering. No. I haven't gotten to that point yet. No. No. Practice, practice, practice. (laughs) (laughs) They get the Carnegie Hall, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And of course, that's universal. We all—it's easier to, to 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 have compassion for the the downtrodden than their oppressors. But as with um, just, I was just reading an article about um, abusers, and most abusers were abused, mm-hmm. um, which is a good thing to keep in mind when we're judging them. I'm I feel like uh, thinking about Christina Bears. Um, I want to. I think I want to call people on their shit, or call people on their line, or the, the things they're doing. And part of it is I want to make them wrong, mm-hmm. but I think the other thing is it's kind of like you, know, you just tell off how much you sort of turn the energy, how much you just sort of sort of let it be. And sort of not say, wait a minute here, this isn't right, mm-hmm. you know. And so I don't know exactly the question I'm asking, but I grapple with um, how to show up in the world that way around inactivism, you know. Um, uh, you know, you sort of just point the positive without, wait a this is the, the path, this is the, this is the path forward. You know, or you say, this person is, uh, is lying, or this person is, you just sort of, this isn't right to let this person yeah. continue on this path of behavior of maligning or whatever the maybe you know. So, again, I know the question I'm asking, but I just sort of grapple with all of that. Well, don't we all? I mean, that's a really common quandary. One thing 
I notice in the big picture of things is that the, the, the internet and TV and MSNBC and Fox News is basically people calling each other out. <laughs> I mean, there's a great deal of that going on right now. And I don't see a lot of people go, going, oh, I guess you're right, I changed my mind. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be really productive. <laughs> so maybe behaving differently in the world and being kind and being compassionate and not having the fuck you response, uh, maybe a gentler response would be helpful. I don't know for sure. I guess it depends on the circumstances. But, um, I mean, isn't that what we're seeing in our world? We're seeing so much divisiveness, and nobody's listening to anybody else unless they're saying exactly what they want to hear. It's interesting. It's an interesting social phenomenon. Please. An example of that, I, I watch uh, the PBS NewsHour, especially on Friday, because they have Shields and Brooks. And a few weeks ago, Judy Woodruff was, you know, leading the conversation, and they were talking about something Trump had done, and, you know, how should we respond? And, you know, you know, they were all getting self-righteous, and, you know, both sides, even the conservative. And then she asked something like the same thing, you know, how should we respond, or what do you make of that? And he said, well, I think we just need to stop paying attention to. <laughs> and this is a conservative. He said, you know, I don't think it's really doing any good for us to keep talking about this. Why don't we move on? And yeah. of course she went back, back to it and tried to <laughs> get it going again. Yeah. But I was like, oh, yeah. Well, especially in the case of Trump, it seems to only encourage him. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. But the media love it. And the media love it. Mm-hmm. And we eat it up. The media, you know, the media wouldn't be loving it if we weren't eating it up. Okay, this is what I struggle with. I remember when Obama first won, and to, in my mind, his great credit, he wanted to be reach across the aisle and tone down the divisiveness, and he went out of his way to concede, make all these concessions to the other side. I, I imagine with the, with the uh, in hope that the other side would then start making, you know, meeting him halfway and so on. And they, yeah, right. They, they, they just totally took advantage of, of, of that attitude he had. And, they, and to the point where it was maddening, it seemed like Obama was giving away the house or the ranch, whatever the metaphor you want to use, um, trying to, trying to um, you know, reach across and, and losing a lot because he's doing that. And so what I struggle with is, is you know, it's, it's great to be forgiving and compassionate. I mean, and I'm not being snarky when I say that, um, but sometimes I think you just have to be a street fighter. You have to just call the evil and just fight any way you can and see these people as people that are destroying this country. And I, I imagine you're going to, I imagine you're going to say that that's not the right way to think, and I might even agree with you. But, but I'm just saying, this is what I'm struggling with. It's like, all right, we'll be, we'll be compassionate and all Buddhists, and um, these people will continue to run roughshod. And the only way you can, you can stop them is by being fighting back. Well, I, I would, no, I'm not going to say that's not the right thing to do. That's the warrior approach. That's a approach, yeah. an approach. But imagine that you're truly an independent. Imagine you're a moderate. <laughs> no. There are many of them, but imagine you're one. You're one you, another way to put that, imagine you're a swing voter. And right now, would you rather have, as a swing voter, would you rather have an Obama, as you described him, or would you rather have a Trump? Who would you vote for? Well, and that, that's that's what's going to determine the next election. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is some room between those two streets. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. But would you rather have, I mean, if I was an independent, would I rather have somebody that's reaching across the aisle listening to different points of view, or I would rather have a, a true believer on either end of the spectrum? If I was an independent, I'd be a, a, a suspicious of the true believers. I don't know, that's 
a political. Yeah. That's a political argument, not a Buddhist I, I, argument. I mean, we could get to the discussion for hours on it. I'm just saying, it, it's just hard. I mean, as much as I love your message, it's hard for me to accept it. And I, I, I wish that weren't the case, but that is the case, right? There area. Please. Something you just popped in my head while um, this was going on is um, regarding you know right you know behavior you know um, in light of okay what do we do you know just just sit there and be mindful or do we take certain actions that you know is considerate of the situation you know um, through that I wanted to throw that out there and see what you would do. Oh, well, the, the message I was trying to get and I might not have expressed myself yeah. very well is be mindful right. and then do whatever you're going to do. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Because you know, you, you might be a warrior, you might be a peacemaker, you might be a teacher, you might be a meditation teacher. That's all good action. So I won't tell you what to do. But be mindful first and whatever you do, whatever your thing is, you'll probably do it better. That's my prejudice. But thank you for that. Actually, I couldn't find the sign-up sheet. Does anybody know? Does anybody I'll put it out there. Okay. Yeah. And there's water for tea, thanks to Grisha. <laughs> he made the water. He changed it from wine. Hi. <laughs> 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 right, um, the GBF retreat will be September 28th, 29th, and 30th of Ashrapani. I think it's our 27th year. Wow. And Bill Weber will be our teacher. Um, there's uh, registration forms and flyers on the credenza. If you have any questions, I'll be around on the registrar. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've got more recommendations. There is an astonishing documentary called Three Identical Strangers, oh, yeah. Yeah. which will stir your deep waters. It is quite mm -hmm. compelling. Mm -hmm. um, Three identical strangers about triplets separated um, on purpose, on purpose by an adoption so, so they can be studied. Oh God! Oh, um, my God. Oh. That's cold. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, so. Yes, that's yeah. so great. The other is the San Francisco Coral Society is going to sing Mozart and Mary Yay! There are flyers out there. It's in um, April 12th and 13th, 11th and 12th. August, August, August. This is the word. Yeah. Down to I saw the cake maker. That's that's it. It's a fabulous, deeply sensitive. What was cake maker? Cake maker just opened it, and it's. Very poignant, it's very deep. Not sure how long it's going to last. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of. It's not a blockbuster. No, it's not a blockbuster. But it is so deep and poignant mm -hmm. about the struggles of a, of a, well, about, of a person with this sexuality. Mm -hmm. Moving here. Okay. Yeah. Any other announcements? All right, uh, next week, Amanda Ream will be a teacher. Uh, Amanda facilitates the Q Sangha for the queer community at SF Against the Stream, Oakland Dharma Punks, and Social Justice Sangha at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. She also practices generative uh, somatics and is a union organizer with domestic workers. She lives in Oakland. She'll be here next week.
Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.